the economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is activist and author Gabriel Kuhn. Originally from Austria, Gabriel now lives in Sweden. As an activist and author of books on both music and politics and sports and politics, Gabriel is the personification of Radical and I was therefore delighted that his publisher contacted me about a possible interview. Gabriel has written on pirates and straight-edge music, a topic I hope to tackle another time with him. In this episode, I want to focus primarily on sports and politics. Welcome to the podcast, Gabriel. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? The first sports team I ever supported, uh, and this is not a joke, it was most probably the Dutch national football team because of the orange jerseys they wore, and it was at the uh, World Cup in Argentina in 1978 when I was six years old and started to watch sports. Uh, a very traumatic tournament for the Dutch. Luckily, I was young enough. I do remember watching the final. The one thing that I do remember most is that it was delayed because one of the Dutch players had a bandage on his arm that he had to replace. That made a huge impression on me as a six-year-old. Yeah, I think that player was actually a PSV player, René van der Kerkhoff. The second, what's your favorite political song? My favorite political song is a song called Freedom to be Poor by the Fellow Travelers. And finally, what is your favorite political book? I don't know. I'm hesitant to answer because the most influential political books I read aren't necessarily very good books. But it was a combination of titles I read, I guess, on armed struggle of the 1970s, both in the global north and the global south. And I'll leave it at that without being more specific. Okay. So before we talk about your writing about football, I want to know a bit more about your own career. You played for a few years semi-professional in Austria, right? Yes. Is that all you're going to say about it? No, I can say more about it. So the way it worked in Austria at the time, so this is the 1980s, there were 12 centers organized by the Austrian Football Federation spread out across the country where they would collect what they considered the most talented players at the time, uh, starting at the age of 14, preparing them for professional careers. So I was selected to be in the one that was uh, closest to me, which was in Innsbruck in the west of the country. More or less by coincidence, I went to high school in a town that at the time had a second division team. And the second division in Austria at the time was semi-professional, which means that you got paid, but except for maybe a few players on each team, you didn't get paid enough to make a living. So most of the people I played with uh, did have a job on the side. Since this team was in the same town I went to high school to, and I guess I was considered a talent even at a very young age, I was offered a place on the squad when I was just 15 years old. So just after one year in that elite youth center, I joined a second division team. And my only claim to fame when it comes to my soccer career is that in that year, I was the youngest player on any squad of first or second division football in Austria. Played for that team for four years and it went, you know, up and down. 
Then when I was 19, at that time, I had several other interests. And to make it short, I think I would have continued my soccer career had I had an offer in the, during the last year I played when I was 19 years old, had I had an offer to join a fully professional first league team. And I didn't want to be stuck in semi-professional second league soccer just because it's a lot of time, a lot of sacrifice made for what I felt wasn't enough of an output. And I had these other interests there, you know, that's politics and my studies and traveling. And so I decided to end right. professional soccer. And as you already indicate, during that period that was the beginning of your student period, you were already quite political. How did that gel with being around football players the whole time? That was one of the problems, although it's interesting the way you phrased the question, because I would say that being around football players... That was the only challenge that I actually enjoyed. So the fact that the jargon in the locker room was very racist, sexist, homophobic, I felt there were ways for me to deal with that. You know, someone would make a homophobic remark and you could come with a witty response and feel that somehow you could, not to a huge degree, but you you, you could change that sort of quote-unquote discourse that was happening in, in the locker room. So that part I felt I could deal with. The bigger problem I had was with sponsors, club owners, managers, frankly, even the audience at times at games. So it was more the social surroundings, the hierarchies. Even at the level I played at the time, the influence of sponsors and club owners who were interested in the game for reasons that had little to do with the sport itself. Yeah, and that's something we're definitely going to talk about more. So in 2011, you published Soccer versus the State, Tackling Football and Radical Politics, which for me is up there with Simon Cooper's Football Against the Enemy. It's my favorite books on football. So what motivated you to write this book? And the origins of that book were a pamphlet that I wrote a few years earlier, which was called the Anarchist Football Manual. And that came out in 2006, I believe. And I wrote that pamphlet because I spent a lot of time in the U.S. in the early 2000s. And I noticed that soccer had become quite popular among radical circles, I think partly because it was associated with migrant communities in the States. And it was kind of a counterpole to the big professional sports, American mm -hmm. football and baseball and such. And so it was interesting for me to observe that. But at the same time, and this is probably a bit of European snobbery, I felt that people didn't know so much about football, about the, the history and the political background. And so I felt I could write this short manual. It turned out to be a fairly big, substantial pamphlet to provide that. And then the pamphlet, you know, in the circles I moved in became fairly popular. And essentially, I constantly talked to people at PM Press about different book projects you could do. And at the time, it came up to do an expanded version of the pamphlet and bring it out as a book. And so that's how the book came about. Right. So football is often portrayed as a working class sport, but you describe in another booklet called Playing as if the World Mattered that the working class movement and particularly Marxist leaders had a problematic relationship with sports in general and football in particular. Can you explain that a bit? I think very early on, there was a conflict in the socialist movement in the broadest sense. And when it came to... Yes, sports in general, and then uh, mainly in European countries, football in particular, as it was so popular. Because on the one hand, it was obvious that it was a sport that was embraced by the working classes, 
working people like to play soccer, they like to watch soccer. And so it seemed like it was a part of working class culture. But at the same time, if you look at the origins of organized soccer, the clubs and the associations, they were all run either by churches uh, or by factory owners. So, so it was definitely not in the hands of the working class. And I think that caused conflict concerning how to deal with this phenomenon from a political perspective. And on the one hand, you had people deeply involved with the worker sport movement who said that, no, this is very important. All we have to do is take control of the game ourselves through worker sports clubs and associations. But you also had the other current who said, regardless of how we organize it, this is just a distraction from political organizing and, and working class struggle. So, so that conflict was always there within the left. Right. You're an outspoken critic of modern football and its commercialization. Where did it go wrong or was it always meant to be going this way? I think historically, certainly living in capitalism, it probably was inevitable development. I think that the last 30, 40 years, again, no coincidence, really going hand in hand with neoliberalism. I mean, the commercialization has just skyrocketed. I mean, it was always there. When I was young and playing in the 1980s, it already seemed like a very commercialized sport, but I mean, it was nothing compared to what it is today in terms of the money involved, in terms of all the tournaments that now exist, in terms of how global everything has become with the big European clubs having offices all over the world to promote their trademark. And the power of FIFA has also skyrocketed. So I think just tied into general capitalist development, which as bad as it already seemed in the 1970s or 80s also has become worse. And I think that's reflected in how football has developed. Right. Yeah, and I think the Champions League is the best example probably well, of joke. that. I, I don't even watch it. The best part about the European competitions is the qualification for the Europa League every summer. <laughs> I love that. Small clubs from around the continent. That's, to me, the old spirit of the European Cups. The Champions League is always the same teams in the quarterfinals or even last 16. It's really boring. Yeah, I'm totally on board with you. So is there still a class basis to football? And if not, are there other sports that have a strong working class and perhaps even a socialist character? I don't know about the socialist character because I don't think there is any particular sport historically that was exclusively organized by socialist organizations. But if you look at the history of the worker sports movement, it's quite obvious that sports that have been popular were sports that don't necessarily have such a strong competitive character. Cycling, hiking, mountaineering, different forms of martial arts. You can organize every sport in, in a competitive manner, and that's not necessarily always a problem. But I think those kind of sports where the collective aspect of training and exercising together outweighs the competitive aspect have always been the sports that have lent themselves to being embraced especially by working class organizations, perhaps even more so than by the working classes themselves. That, that right. depends. And I think football, which is a competitive sport, but interestingly enough, since it's so popular and so easy to play, which goes hand in hand with its popularity, 
I mean, if you look at the way that football is played on grassroots level, just when people get together and play, I mean, it's competitive, but the teams always change. So there is sort of a dynamic element, a very strong collective element that's not just about someone winning and someone losing. So I think in that sense, football actually kind of cuts through that divide between strongly competitive and non-competitive sports. Right. But you were talking about these type of movements that were embraced by worker movements. These were also the type of movements that, um, particularly in Germany and Austria, were embraced by nationalist groups, so-called Wandervögel. Yeah. Um, and this has always been an issue with football, too. And what you see these days, and I was talking about this with James Montague in the first episode, who wrote a book about ultras and said, with regard to particularly Italy, the working class or part of white working class men have moved to the far right. And as a consequence, a lot of the ultras have moved to the far right. Is there still far left politics in football today? In supporters' culture, there certainly is. It's interesting what you're saying about how different sports historically have been, if you will, used or influenced or co-opted by different political movements, which reminds me of something that I always try to stress because I think it's important, and that is that sports itself as a phenomenon and then also different individual sports and disciplines, they're not inherently left-wing or right-wing. They're basically just sports. So the political dimension depends very much on how you play them, how you organize them, and the overall political environment they are played and organized in. In football, this is very obvious. Like, it's such a popular sport. Now it's different in times of corona when there are no audiences in stadiums. But during other times, I mean, there are hardly any places in society where as many people gather every weekend as in sports stadiums. And so yep. in many parts of the world, not necessarily the U.S., but in many parts of the world, that means football stadium. So there are highly politicized spaces, no matter what people want to tell you about, you know, separating sports from politics. So they're highly politicized places. And the political struggles, if you will, that happen there are very important. And they, they happen all the time between often far right groups and then perhaps far left groups. You have that all across Europe. And I think it's very important. I mean, the football stadiums are both the reflection of society at large, but they can also influence society at large. Yeah, absolutely. In recent years, we have seen more and more non and even anti-commercial initiatives in football, sometimes called punk football, where fans left big corporate teams like Manchester United and founded new fan-led clubs like the FC United of Manchester. What do you make of these initiatives? I support them 100%. <laughs> this is what's needed. And the bigger the scale, the better. I mean, ideally, although this is very, very difficult, but I mean, ideally, you'd found an alternative global soccer federation, alternative to FIFA. And in a sense, I see these clubs that are emerging, uh, fan-owned, fan-controlled clubs, as a start in that direction. I mean, who knows how far this is going to go. But it is a first step of taking control of the sport you love and taking it out of the hands of the people who, in many ways, really destroy. Right. But what I wonder is, can they last? I mean, there is this book, Punk Football, which gives some examples of an established class that almost go under, fans save them, and then it becomes more democratized. But when they bounce back, 
there's more and more pressure to take sponsors on board who then demand more say. And the fans want that as well, right? And so is this not a problem that is much deeper than just the leaks? Like, is there also something in us as fans that in the end we want a successful team more than we want a democratic team? Absolutely. That is one of the main reasons. I mean, if you go back historically, why did the Workers Football League, which existed in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, eventually it failed because all the workers sports clubs were abolished by the Nazis. But there were already problems before that during the 1920s. And one of the problems was that the most successful, the best players very often were transferred to so-called bourgeois sports clubs because they were able to offer better money. Right. And a lot of the spectators, working class spectators, perhaps also then went to go see the best players at those other teams because that's where they were. And I think we have a very similar problem. I agree. I think the problem is that once as such an alternative club that is founded and exists today, once you try to work your way up through the regular leagues and prove that you can compete with these other teams, but on different terms, it becomes very, very difficult to stay true to the ideals that you were founded on because you enter this competitive realm where there are just certain laws and rules that are hard to avoid. So I think what would be needed, and this is perhaps very idealistic, and perhaps impossible, but I think what would be needed is to really, to really establish like to draw very clear lines between the organized football that exists today and, I mean, it's worse at the top, but you can feel it way, way down in the leagues as well. So you'd have to establish a really separate culture. Again, I'm probably idealizing the workers' sport movement of the 1920s and 30s because it's always easy to idealize things that lie a long way in the past. But at that time, the distinctions were pretty clear. I think that'd be necessary for such a movement to be sustainable and survive. Right. And so I think I'm the same type of romantic. Whenever I go ground topping, I go to like the third division in Germany or the second division in Belgium. And I'm in the same kind of setting as I would be in the 1970s, 80s and the first division in those type of teams. And I particularly like to go to provincial teams where people are just happy with the team. They come and they talk about the 1930s when they were still good, for example, but they seem to accept that this is their team, it belongs to the community, and that's it. But there is some moment that even when that team, for some reason, does well, then there is this switch, and that switch is not just in the ambitious sponsors that come in and the players. It's also among the fans, and, and I feel that once you have sniffed that, these teams also can't really come back, right? And this is what worries me so much. And you see that, I think, the Dritte Bundesliga in Germany is a very good example where everyone has their arena now. They yeah. don't even try to be their local team anymore. No, that is very true. Although I'll give you an example of Germany, which I think maybe goes a little, at least a little in the other direction, which I personally felt was a positive example. I'm talking about the team from Paderborn. Mm -hmm. I'll try to make this short. But they went up to the Bundesliga for the first time, I think it was five or six years ago. And like so many teams, they had great ambitions and it didn't work out. And because there was a clash between the ambitions and how it went, they were almost ruined financially not just down in the, the second league, but then the next year, even the third league, and really struggled to survive even as a club. And so they went back to the Bundesliga last year. And because of that former experience, I think 
last year's experience in Bundesliga, both for the club itself, but even for the spectators, it was more like, okay, we're not going to change. We're not going to invest millions of euros again as last time and ruin the club. We'll just accept that we'll probably just be here for a year and we enjoy it. And then we'll be back in the second league. And I think this happens more and more. Possibly it's a sign that there are changes just in the overall attitude of both clubs and fans, because I think it's a consequence of more and more people realizing that also the way the football is run now, I mean, it isn't sustainable. It's certainly not sustainable for 80, 90 percent of the clubs. It might yeah. be as long as capitalism exists in the form that we have it today. It might be for the top clubs, but not for the other ones. I think as difficult as it is to imagine a different football, just in the same way that it is difficult to imagine a different world, it doesn't mean that people are satisfied with what we have. That's not true for society as we have it now, and that's certainly not true for football. If you'd ask any average football fan if they're happy with the way that things run in football today, 95% would say no. So there is the dissatisfaction is there. We'll just have to figure out what the alternative could be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Finally, what is the most important misperception about the relationship between football and radical politics? I think there is few. One is maybe, and, and that, again, I think depends on the different angles that radicals or left-wing people have of sports in general and football. Because I think you have it both ways. I think some people... You know, I see texts where, oh, you know, football is this great collective experience that is per se left wing. And then you cite people like Cesar Minotti, who talked about left wing football and all that. So I think on the one hand, there is an over romanticization on the radical left of what football as a sport is, which, again, I think it's just a sport. It has elements that correspond to left-wing ideals of fairness and solidarity and all that, but it also has these more competitive hierarchical elements too, if you look at the way that teams are structured and the role of managers and such. And then the other misconception, of course, comes from the other angle, which is that, oh, you know, it's, it's just this silly game, a distraction, has no political value at all. I mean, this is wrong as well. As I guess, very often in these heated debates, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Okay, thank you very much for coming on the show, Gabriel. Thank you again for inviting me. Gabriel Kuhn is staying under the radar of social media, but you can and should read his many books, most of them published in English by PM Press. On the issue of football and sports, I particularly recommend Soccer versus the State, Tackling Football and Radical Politics, as well as Playing as if the World Mattered an illustrated history of activism in sports. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Daddy B.